Morning, church. Um, it's amazing to me how the presence of Jesus brings the often hidden and mysterious spiritual world into vivid clarity. We saw this in the story of Jesus' baptism. You know, we read that a, a couple weeks ago. And uh, when that happened, we, we saw the full Trinity manifest, right? We, we saw the Holy Spirit descend as a dove. We heard the voice of God the Father speak from a, from a split open heavens. And, 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 and the Father identifies Jesus as his beloved Son. We also see this spiritual world coming into clarity uh, whenever Jesus is near the demon-possessed people, we, we, we read about that a few weeks ago uh, when he was teaching in the synagogue, right? And the, the demons cry out in the presence of Jesus, have mercy on us. You know, have you come to, to, to torture us, right? They, they beg for mercy in Jesus' presence. And, you know, I, for, for that guy there in the synagogue that day, I don't know how many people knew what he was going through until that moment. We see the the spiritual world on full display here in the reading that we did today as Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And, and what we read is nothing less than full-blown spiritual warfare. So we, we see Jesus, who is fresh from his baptism, being led into the wilderness for no other purpose than to face the devil mano a mano. Now, we know because he's Jesus, and we've read the story before, we know that Jesus will emerge victorious in the conflict. If not, like, we wouldn't still be talking about Jesus today. But I want to highlight something for you. It, it isn't when Jesus resists temptation, that God spoke his approval. Right? It's not like God sent Jesus into the wilderness to test him, and when he came out victorious, God said, this is my beloved son. It's not the way it worked. Jesus' identity was established before he was confronted by the devil. Jesus wasn't God's beloved son because he resisted the devil. And this is this is important for you here. Jesus resisted the devil because he was God's beloved son. And we'll see that here in a moment. Now, when we read scripture, and especially in a story like this, I, I think we have a tendency to, to, to highlight the difference between Jesus and ourselves. You read a story like this and you go, Jesus is perfect. I am not. Jesus is God. I am not. That's true. I mean, but I think we lose a lot from stories like this if we don't also think about how much Jesus is like us. I think if we overemphasize the difference, we kind of miss a lot of the meat of the story. Jesus became 
a flesh and blood human. That means that he got tired. He got hungry. He was only in one place at a time. He laughed. He cried. He had relationships, and some of those were messy. He was betrayed by his closest friends. And when he faced temptation, it was real. I think it's easy to read the story and and think about it as like some sort of theater, you know? Like Satan stands there and he says his lines and Jesus obviously says, no, thank you. And and when we think about it that way, then it, it seems like, you know, there was never really any danger that Jesus would fall into sin. I mean, he wouldn't, right? Or maybe, maybe at the very least, Um, it would just be so much easier for Jesus to resist temptation than it would be for us. Because, you know, he's the Son of God, right? But the thing is, I, I don't think it was easy. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Jesus like this. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen carefully. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, that doesn't sound like theater to me. That doesn't sound easy to me. He himself suffered when he was tempted, The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus' struggle with temptation was just like ours. And because it was just like ours, that makes Jesus sympathetic and compassionate with our struggles. Guys, I don't don't know if you've ever felt alone in your struggles. But according to the Bible here, you never are. Because Jesus gets it. So rather than looking at this as a story merely about the difference between Jesus and us, which is easy enough to do, but maybe we can learn some things about the realities of spiritual struggles by paying attention to what's going on. So the first thing to notice is, of course, that the devil comes to Jesus when Jesus is in a physically weakened state, when he is totally isolated. And I know that temptations come every day, but it's naive to think that, we aren't, that they aren't especially potent when we're running on fumes. There is a connection between your body and your spirit. I promise there is. When, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're stressed or anxious, when you feel alone or insecure, those are the times that it's particularly easy to fall into seeking comfort or control or relief in any number of ways that you, that you actually know are wrong. So the devil comes to Jesus when he's at a physical 
low point with no, no one to support him. And his attack comes on a few different fronts. So first what he does is he attacks Jesus in the weakness of his flesh. It says he'd been 40 days without food, and God bless Matthew for spelling it out for us. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and according to Matthew, he was hungry. Thanks, Matthew. But he was, I mean, genuinely hungry. And I guess it's important for him to point that out so, we, so that we recognize Jesus really is human, you know? So the devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, of course Jesus could have done it. We know this. He turns water into wine. He multiplies loaves and fish. We know this. Jesus knows this. Satan knows this. Everybody knows that he can do it. That's not what's at stake here. What the devil is doing is, is he's making a mockery of this act of worship, this, this fasting that Jesus has done. He wants... Jesus to put his own wants and cravings ahead of his devotion to the Father. You know, this tactic worked really well when the devil tried it the first time with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say you can't eat that? It's really good for you. There's an insidious lie underneath this temptation. It's, it's as if Satan is saying, your father won't care for you. He doesn't care for you. You can't trust him to provide. You have to take matters into your own hands. You'd be foolish not to. But Jesus knows for a fact that his father does care for him. That's why in just two chapters later in Matthew, Jesus will preach to the crowds on the mount, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or what you'll wear, for your heavenly Father knows you, needs these, you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these will be given to you as well. That's just not theoretical for Jesus. I mean, he's preaching life that he's lived. It even goes deeper for Jesus, right? Because he doesn't answer with that. He answers with this. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But what does that mean? Well, consider this. The earth is teeming with life because God spoke. The, the, the grass of the field, the, 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 the grains of wheat, you know, that he might hunger for, those exist because God said, let there be life. Bread isn't the solution. Not really. It might be the means, but it's not the solution. Ultimately, bread does not give or sustain life. Life is a gift from God. You can't go around him to get the bread of life. You have to wait on him and trust in him to be all and to give all that you need. 
well, the devil doesn't give up. He, he, he goes at a different angle the second time. Instead of his, his belly, he attacks Jesus' heart. He attacks his faith. And, and, and more acutely, he tries to sow doubt that God the Father really loves him. You don't really believe God loves you. I mean, you don't really believe that because if you did, you could throw yourself off this temple because you know that God would never let his precious son be hurt. But you and I both know better, don't we? It's an interesting question, right? Because we know why Jesus came to earth. So does Jesus and so does Satan. Jesus came because the Father sent him to die. This isn't hypothetical. The devil is trying to force Jesus to see his Father as cruel and indifferent and unloving. What kind of parent wouldn't do everything in their power to protect their child? And yet we both know the Father won't save you from dying. I think a lot of us heard that same sort of lie in our own hearts from time to time. How could a loving God let me suffer this way? If God really loves me, why doesn't he stop this? Why doesn't he save me? But Jesus knows who his father is. Jesus knows who he is. And he also knows that his his father doesn't owe him any proof of his love. Jesus is the servant of all, most especially of his father. It's not his place to test God. It's his place to go where he is sent. Even though the road will lead through terrible suffering and even death, the road doesn't end there. The road the father has set him on ends in glory and the highest good. It says in Philippians that because Jesus lowered himself to the lowest place, being faithful even unto death, God has exalted him to the highest place. So finally, the, the devil just cuts to the chase, right? If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Why endure the suffering? Why go through all the rejection and heartache? Why not just skip to the end you were destined for? And, you know, just edit out all the messy and terrible parts. But that's a bit of a bait and switch, right? Because the kingdoms that the devil's offering are not the kingdom that Jesus has come to rule. His kingdom is not of this world. His goal is not to, to make heaven on earth, but to set free the captives that are bound to this world. What good, Jesus says later on, what good does it do to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? No, Jesus' eyes are set on a kingdom that would never fall. His heart was set on a world that would never pass away. And the, only, and the only way to that kingdom was through obedience to his Father. So Jesus says, You shall worship the Lord your God, 
and serve him alone. And with that, the devil had to flee. Now, I think there's a lot to take in in, in, in all that we just heard from Jesus. But I want to finish with this thought. It might be the most practical thing I say to you this whole, this whole service. It isn't Jesus' power or, or, or like his willpower or his grit that overcomes the devil and his temptations. How did Jesus overcome temptation? With the word of God. There's incredible power in the promises in God's word. There is incredible strength in knowing who we are and where we stand with God because of that word. And there's incredible grace when we don't overcome temptation. Because our standing with God isn't about our performance. It's about our identity as his beloved children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us your sons and daughters and that you've given us your Holy Spirit to be our strength when we fight the temptations that come our way. We give you thanks, Lord. We give you thanks that Christ has faced sin and faced death and overcome, and he shares that victory with us. We thank you, Lord, that he is a sympathetic and compassionate high priest who understands what we're going through, not from the outside, but because he's lived it. We pray, Lord, that you would keep our eyes and our hearts turned toward him and that you would set our eyes on your kingdom and not this one. Give us grace and strength and fill us with your joy. All these things we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.